Live with CDP Sports Talk, a weekly sports and entertainment podcast sponsored by Barry Cullen Chevrolet. Live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and LinkedIn. And on audio via Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Anchor FM, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Radio Public, and TuneIn. Now, here's your host, Chris Palme. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 29 of Live with CDP Sports Talk here on this Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Live with CDP Sports Talk is sponsored by Barry Cullen Chevrolet Dealership at 905 Woodlawn Road West in the Guelph Auto Mall. Check out barrycullen.com for the newest selection of new and pre-owned GM vehicles or give them a call at 519 824 Zero two one zero, or email them at info at barrycullen.com as well. Live with CDP Sports Talk is on weeknights at 8 p.m. on radio station WQEE 99.1 FM in Metro Atlanta, the home of Southern Talk and sports. And I'm looking forward to my guest today. We're just waiting for him to come on. And this is his third uh, appearance on my show. And... Um, his name is Bud Bailey. He's the uh, lead columnist for the Buffalo Sports Page, and he's the uh, former uh, Buffalo News copy editor and reporter from 1994 to 2017. Uh, Bud uh, Bailey, along with uh, Greg Tanter, have just written a new book about the uh, Buffalo Bills, uh, illustrated timeline uh, of a storied team, which just came out recently. So I'm looking forward to speaking to Bud about his uh, book, along with Greg who uh, wrote in that book as well about the Buffalo Bills. And I really read the book, so I uh, highly recommend you guys uh, checking out the uh, Buffalo Bills illustrated timeline of a storied uh, team. And there's stuff in there I didn't even know about the Buffalo Bills as well. So bear with us. Uh, we're just waiting for Bud to come on today. And uh, this is his third time coming on as well. And Bud also is the uh, time clock operator uh, for some of the Buffalo Bisons games at Sailing Field in Buffalo as well. So uh, Bud's been involved uh, with Buffalo sports and media for uh, 40 years and uh, looking forward to having Bud come on. So just just waiting to see. Okay. Bud's just loading on, so hopefully uh, we'll see, see him soon. So uh, Bud should be here soon. While we're waiting for Bud, I'm just going to play a little clip uh, from WKBW Channel 7 in Buffalo, and it's just about the uh, 2023 Buffalo Bills and the receiving core as well. So we're just going to play a little clip here as we wait for Bud to come on. So one second, and it's about a two-minute clip courtesy of WKBW Channel 7 in Buffalo. Season officially kicking off Tuesday, and players reporting to training camp in at Rochester at St. John Fisher. And one storyline to keep an eye on, which one of the Bills' new eight receivers could emerge as the number two wideout? Statistically, you look at it, we're, we're, we were top three, four offense in the league last year, and 
um, it wasn't good enough. The Buffalo Bills were sent packing another year short of making the playoffs. A 2022 team that was clearly missing a threat in the wide receiver position outside of Stephon Diggs. We have seen year after year after year, great offenses win Super Bowls. They win world championships. So if your star receiver doesn't show up day one of mandatory minicamp and the head coach originally stated he was concerned, should Bill's mafia be? Culture isn't just guaranteed within an organization once you establish it. You have to you have to continue to work on it a lot. It's a lot like a marriage in that respect. And I thought that was a great analogy. With Diggs not in attendance, former Miami Dolphins wide receiver Trent Sherfield saw a lot of reps instead and impressed the QB. I've loved what I've seen from Trent so far. The dude works extremely hard. He's one of the hardest working guys on the team. Doesn't complain about anything. He, he's he's rolling right now. Sherfield is one of eight receivers the Bills picked up this offseason. And only time will tell who will stand out enough to make the active 53-man roster. Guys are getting in and learning the playbook. And it's not a simple off offense by any means. So um, guys are, are very prepared. We're going out there. They know their stuff, uh, and, and these new guys are doing such a great job. Outside of the eight newcomers in the receiver group, the Bills only returned three wideouts who were on last year's active roster, including second-year receiver Khalil Shakir, who might not be left out of the number two conversations for this year's offense. He's going he's gonna to have a, you know, a really good year, and I think utilizing him last year um, the way that we did, I, I have a lot of trust in him. I think, you know, he's only going to grow, continue to grow in his role. When it comes to Gabe Davis, he would be the natural choice to emerge as the true number two. But the consistency would have to be proven early because this Bills quarterback needs help out there to do one thing. I so ba badly want to bring Super Bowl here to Buffalo. All right, guys, that clip was courtesy of uh, WKBW Channel 7 in Buffalo. So, uh... We're just waiting for my guest, Bud Bailey, to come on. Just having some technical issues. That does happen from time to time. So hopefully he'll be on. Bud Bailey, again, is the uh, lead columnist for the Buffalo Sports page. And he's also the former longtime Buffalo News copy editor and reporter from 1994, 2017. He's covered the Bills. He's covered the Sabres. He's covered the Bandits. And uh, him and uh, Greg Tanter have just written a new book. Uh, which I'm hoping to talk to Bud uh, this afternoon on here about, uh, the illustrated timeline of a story team about the Buffalo Bills going back to their being founded in 1959 by the late Ralph C. Wilson. And their, their first year in the AFL was in 1960 as well. Guys, check it out. Check out the book. If you're a Buffalo Bills fan especially or an NFL historian for the history of the game, check that book out as well. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to Bud. Fingers crossed he'll be on here as well. So, um, guys, I will be covering the Buffalo Bills practice Friday. Uh, I will be going down to Highmark Stadium Friday, and I'll be watching their practice. And uh, as some of you guys know, I was uh, approved for an NFL media pass this year, so I'm going to be doing some games uh, in uh, covering the NFL games this year. So obviously in Buffalo, uh, Detroit, I'm hoping, uh, down in Foxborough and Boston, and maybe Philadelphia as well. So what do you guys think of the Philadelphia Eagles' new uniforms? Uh, that are not new uniforms, but going back to the retro uniforms, the Kelly Green. A lot of fans love them, including myself, but then there's some Eagle fans that are like, yeah, but they didn't win in those uniforms. But I tell fans, 
it wasn't the color of the uniform back in the 80s and 90s why they didn't win. They didn't have good ownership, and they didn't have really good teams to win consistently. So uh, I love the Kelly Green uniforms, and I hope the Eagles stick with them as well. And the Buffalo Bills have nice uniforms as well. So, guys, um, here's a question for you. Which team has the best uniforms in pro sports right now? Let me know. I really think uh, in football, I think the Eagles, Kelly Greens are sharp. I, I, in the CFL, I think the Argonauts uh, blue uh, jerseys are awesome as well. I think the Argonauts and the Eagles have the best uniforms. All right, guys, I'm just waiting for my guest to come on, and I think Bud is here. We're just going to give him a little 20 seconds to get himself set up, but I really appreciate Bud coming on here for the third time. And uh, I've gotten to know him from the, the Buffalo Bandit games and the Buffalo Bisons games as well. And uh, I was going to talk to Bud. Uh, we're going to talk about his book uh, with Greg Tenter, uh, Trenter, that came out recently called The Illustrated Timeline of a Storied Team. And uh, it's a good book. I highly recommend it. So just one second, I'm going to bring on my guest, Bud Bailey, who's the lead columnist, again, for the Buffalo Sports Page. Check out their website, buffalosportspage.com, as well for the, any of the updates or the latest updates on sports in the city of Buffalo. Good afternoon, Bud. How are you doing? I've been, I've been better, Chris. It's been a uh, difficult experience getting on for some reason, but uh, I'm glad to be finally with you, and I'm, I'm not going to take a gun to the computer for the next 45 minutes at least. They say StreamYard is uh, usually user-friendly, but sometimes with technology, you just never know. Well, that was that was at my end because I couldn't get to the my mailbox when I signed on. And I went on at 245 and tried to get to the mail, and it stuck. And I restarted and was slow booting up and slow getting in. So uh, I'm happy. Let's just say I'm really happy to be with you now, Chris. All right. Well, thank you. And I've learned I've learned this too in the media industry. The show's got to go on. So I just uh, was rambling on for a few minutes while we're waiting for you to come on. And uh, I'm really excited about talking about your latest book with Greg, uh, The Buffalo Bills Illustrated Timeline of a Storied Team. And uh, I finished it uh, this weekend and uh, I really enjoyed it. I think you and Greg did a great job on it. Well, thank you. Um... It's funny, Greg and I are both pretty familiar with, with Bill's history at this point, and Greg is the leading collector of memorabilia for the Bills worldwide, really, and uh, has a season ticket even though he lives in Massachusetts and drives in for games and has driven to road games and all that. And so we really knew a lot of the details already, and a lot of it when we when they were we were told the um, – format of the book, which was a series of stories, about 140 or whatever the number is, um, we said, okay, we can pick these out in no time. Um, and most of them are pretty easy, Chris. The Super Bowl games, the big comebacks, some yeah. important transactions. I think anyone who's a Bills fan could probably come up with three quarters off the top of your hat. The one interesting problem we had was the book was set, but we didn't know when last season would end. We didn't know if they were going to the Super Bowl or if they'd uh, be eliminated before the playoffs or get into the playoffs and lose a game or win a game and lose a game, which is what happened. So we had to write extra material just in case we needed it. And that was kind of an interesting experience. And then once the Bills got in the playoffs and DeMar Hamlin obviously deserved a lot of attention at the end of last season got in the playoffs and then lost to Cincinnati in the second round. And we're like, okay, 
how much do we need? How much do we have to throw out? So there was some frantic work in January in that sense. Uh, and that's about when we finished it, right around uh, the end of January, beginning of February. It was uh, published by Reedy Press. So how did this all come about again? Um, Reedy did a book on the St. Louis, or excuse me, the Kansas City Chiefs. They're, Chiefs are out of St. Louis a couple of years ago when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. And uh, someone from Reedy called uh, a writer in Buffalo, Jeff Miller, who asked him if he was interested in doing it. Jeff did a book on Rock and the Rock Pile on the 1960s bills, which if anyone's interested in that uh, is a must read. He did a great job of tracking down players uh, all about probably close to 20 years ago now and uh, made a book out of the conversations and uh, he couldn't do it. And he he recommended me. So they called uh, me up and I said, well, uh, there's a lot of pictures involved. And I knew Greg Tranner from other work I had done with him, uh, loved football and loved the photo aspect of it and had memorabilia they could take a picture of. And he also was a good writer. So um, it was a good marriage in that sense. I'm not sure. I'm not saying Greg and I are going to get married soon, but uh, we we had worked together on a Buffalo Braves book that'll be out later this year. And this was kind of in our sweet spot for both. We both thought we could do the history of the Bills justice, if you will. And uh, away we went. And it was uh, the call came in August and we were working on the Braves book right until October, although we did get a little bit of a head start. But then November, December, January, we were pretty much devoted to the Bills book. And uh, since then, it's been proof proofreading and uh, looking at proofs and making last minute changes. And uh, at first, we, were the, we thought the book was coming out in April. And then that got back because it's hard to find a printer these days that isn't working on high school yearbooks. This is a coffee table book, and it looks like a high school yearbook in a sense. So I wound up getting pushed back to uh, late July. And uh, about 10 days ago, it, it popped up in the mail and uh, as I'm fond of saying, there's nothing better, Chris, than going to the front door and seeing a box of your book sitting there. Uh, you can't wait to open it and see how it actually came out, even though you have an idea because you've looked at the proofs. And uh, this was quite a thrill because Reedy did a great job of the layout. Uh, as you saw in the uh, file I sent you, the uh, pictures are really great. And uh, the layout was terrific. And uh, we couldn't have been more pleased with that. And that's what you hear first and foremost. The book looks great. Absolutely. And uh, it covered everything on the team as well. And there was some stuff about the team I didn't know about, like uh, the CFL game in 1961 against the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the rabbit's foot. I don't want to spoil too much of it, but uh, I just think you guys did a tremendous job on it. And uh, even though I'm an Eagles fan, I'm an NFL historian and uh, I thought you guys covered everything. And also, um, yeah, just, I just thought it was a tremendous read and, and 176 pages was just perfect. And it's it's funny you mentioned those two things about the CFL game, which I didn't really know about until well some years ago. But you know, how could the Hamilton Tiger Cats play the the Buffalo Bills? And they played it in Hamilton, I guess. And Hamilton won the game in part because Hamilton knew the game was under CFL rules, and Hamilton knew how to play CFL rules. The Bills, I'm sure, had to be had to have the concept of rouge or single explained to them before the game. You know, what are you talking about? A single, uh, which is a touchback and and no scoring in the American game, of course. Uh, the rabbit's foot game I kind of stumbled on when I was writing a book on this date in Buffalo sports history 10 years ago, how they handed out 5,000 rabbit's feet or whatever the number was to the fans that came in and attempted to change their luck. And 
uh, did, they should have given it to the quarterback, as I think I wrote, because uh, they were very unlucky, had had a really bad day, and and the Bills lost another one at home. So, so much for rabbit's feet. It didn't come become an annual tradition here. And there were some other NFL uh, games against CFL teams back then, too. Uh, the Chicago Cardinals played the Toronto Argonauts, and I believe the Pittsburgh Steelers came to Toronto as well. So um, back then, back then the CFL uh, could compete with the NFL because the NFL back then or the AFL didn't have the con- TV contracts as, like they do now. And uh, I just love writing about the stuff like that, and I thought that was great. And I, I really thought you guys put a lot of effort into this book, and uh, I've been promoting it as much as I can on here. Yeah, the CFL did a good job, um, you know, especially back in the 50s and 60s when uh, quite a few players went up there to play if they couldn't make the NFL. And, and I don't want to say the salaries were uh, the same, but the CFL could come up with some decent paychecks for those yeah. who, who needed one back then in the 50s and 60s. And uh, I remember seeing it uh, a bit uh, on TV every so often, and you kind of go, oh, okay. And some of the players you've heard of because they played in the NFL before. And uh, recently I covered a CFL game in Hamilton and uh, a couple of Buffalo connections. Uh, Chad Kelly, obviously with the Argonauts, he's trying to get back to the NFL. I've interviewed him. I think he, I think he's on the way right path to get back to the NFL possibly next year. And uh, I met Steve Tasker's son, Luke Tasker, who's a color analyst for the Tiger Cats and had a great CFL career. And uh, he's just a spinning image of uh, his dad, Steve. Yeah, I went up to uh, Hamilton for a game maybe four or five years ago just to see what it was like, and Luke was still playing. And it was really funny to see so many people in the stands with Tasker uniform jerseys on. They were everywhere, and he was obviously very popular. And uh, His dad was is still popular in Buffalo. He's had a great career in uh, TV. He's still working now uh, 25 years after retirement. And uh, very well-spoken uh, gentleman and uh, – arguably, arguably the greatest special teams player ever. Uh, that hasn't helped him get into the Hall of Fame. It has, it's helped him get close, but he's not quite in yet. And the uh, I think he's now a senior candidate. He didn't make the finals this time, but uh, patience is a virtue, and, and Steve certainly shown it in that sense. And maybe maybe he gets uh, the pick. It's, it's a hard argument to make. Uh, kickers, punters, and, and have had a difficult trouble – Difficult time getting into the Hall of Fame in pro football in Canton. And uh, someone like Tasker, who would block punts and, and make returns and uh, great tackles uh, in, in open field, uh, is another guy that it's just it's a unique skill set. And there's no really com- real comparison for him with anybody else in Canton. So it's a, it's a tougher argument, but uh, we'll see if he wins going forward. I do think he will get in, and I think it'll be soon. And uh, I wanted to ask you this too, and then we'll get back to the book. Um, the Bills Wall of Fame, uh, Hall of, or the Wall of Fame, uh, they haven't put anybody on lately. Who do you see in the future as being the next one being put on the Wall of Fame at uh, High Mark? I still want to call it Rich Stadium, but High Mark yeah. Stadium. Don't <laughs> call it War Memorial Stadium. No. I have to look at the list of who's in, but I, I would think. Someone like Kyle Williams, um, if he's not in, and again, I, I haven't looked at this in a long, long time, um, he's probably going in. Uh, Eric Moulds, to me, is a guy who is just going into the Western New York um, or the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame, and I think that's overdue. Um, there's a few guys in that era who were, were overlooked. I, I think Fred Jackson was probably on his way until he got hurt uh, 
and he was never the same in terms of his career, and that probably hurt him, uh, cost him a chance at the wall. Uh, but yeah, it was quite a, a drought there with the playoffs since they went uh, almost 20 years. I think it was 1999 to 2017 or so, and yeah. uh, that tends to depress your candidates. And you know, there were so many bills that were so good for the team in their Super Bowl era in the late 80s, early early 90s, and it's uh, it's easy to pick those guys. But the other ones, when you're playing on a team of six and ten or whatever the number is, it's just hard to get attention. And being an Eagles fan, I know the Eagles before I was born, they went 17 years as well without making the playoffs from 61 to 78. And and uh, there was a – I read in your book, and that was great, that the uh, – well, not great for the Eagles, but they had a chance of getting O.J. Simpson back in, what, 69? And they ended up winning too many games in the Bills. Yes, that's how 68. They, Everyone yeah, figured O.J. was headed to Philadelphia, and, and they messed up because they won. Man, I, I just wonder what he would look like at being an eagle, but things happen for a reason. Yeah, OJ was didn't do too much until Lou Saban arrived in 1972, and uh, that's, of course, one of the subplots of that era that's covered in the book because uh, Lou Saban came in and looked at OJ and said, we're giving him the ball, and they did. He won the rushing title in 72, uh, and I, I think that stretch from 72 to 76 no one in NFL history has ever gained more yards than O.J. Simpson did during that stretch. I had a podcaster ask me uh, who my favorite Bills player was ever, and I told him that reporters don't really have favorites unless they're good talkers, uh, which means the, Ken Hall is the greatest Bills player of all time, according to the media, just because he was such a good talker and so articulate and explained so well. But I said, I grew, I grew up in suburban Buffalo from 1970 on, and as a teenager, everyone was an O.J. Simpson fan. Everyone just loved watching him. Uh, you, when he looked like he was going to get two yards, when he, he'd get five. When he looked like he'd get five, he'd get ten. And when it looked like he'd get ten, he'd get, go 80. Just a dynamic back, a, a tremendous combination of power and speed. And obviously, he's turned rather radioactive. And, and you really have to downplay uh, his story in a book like this a bit. But but what a running back, and uh, what a pleasure to watch a guy like that um, when he was in his playing days and then his prime in Buffalo. Is he still the greatest running back in Bill's history in his prime compared to Thurman Thomas? Probably all what you want. Uh, I think Thurman Thomas has a case because he did so many things well. Thurman was a better receiver out of the, the uh, backfield, and Thurman was a better blocker. But O.J. was faster and more explosive, and um, I think if, if I'm going to have to pick one for my team in the all-time draft, I would take Simpson because maybe uh, Thomas's abilities are a little more common while O.J. was extraordinary, but gee, not, not much to choose from there. They're both guys you want on your team if you can help it. Best offense line in team history that's still the electric company. Uh, probably, although clearly the Bills, Bills offensive line in the Super Bowl years was pretty good. That The electric company did what its job was, which was supposed to be, which was blocked for OJ. And it did that. Uh, I don't know whether it's a indication, but the Bills never won a playoff game with that group. And the later group with Hall and uh, Richer and, and, and Wolford and that crew, uh, obviously won a lot of playoff games and uh, were very dependable with the no-huddle offense, which isn't easy. Um, 
Ken Hall was the quarterback of the offensive line in that area, and he had to call the signals on the fly because all the players were plays were called on the fly. So uh, that's not easy, and I'm not going to underrate that group. But uh, uh, OJ and Dewam with Dewam Aware and McKenzie and and the rest of the crew were a terrific combination, and uh, they could run block like crazy. So much history with this franchise, even since 1960. And then you've got to talk about the triangle defense, too, with uh, uh, Freddie Smurlis and uh, Jim Haslett. Back yeah, Smurlis, Haslett, and Shane Nelson came along in the early 80s. And uh, Haslett and Smurlis were draft choices. Nelson had been already there, although not for long. And uh, Mike Dodd, the reporter for the Buffalo News at the time, named them the Bermuda Triangle because things would go into their that triangle area of the defense and not be seen again. And uh, I think I gave Mike a plug for that. Mike's an old friend of mine back in the day. And uh, they really, they had a ton of personality. Smurlis and Haslett were just complete characters. Uh, Warner Hessler, the Courier Express, once sat down with them in training camp. And the two of them had him on stitches of the exploits um, they compiled while playing together with the Bills. Um, and about half of them could be used in a family newspaper, shall we say. So they were, you know, Smurlis obviously had about a 12-year career in Buffalo, and Haslett wasn't quite as long, but wound up going into coaching and uh, coached the Saints for a while, and he's been an assistant coach uh, at a variety of places over the years. Buffalo had some good teams in, in, in the 70s and um, in the early 80s as well. Uh, the 1980 AFC East Championship and Buffalo's talking proud. And I, I love that part of in, in your book as well. Like you said, you covered everything in that book. Well, not, not everything, but uh, most things. Talking proud was uh, a fun era when everybody kind of hopped on Chuck Knox's bandwagon. He came in when the franchise was really dead in 77. They were drawing less than 30,000 for some games. And uh, take it from a guy who sat in the stands, it was pretty depressing to be in an 80,000-seat stadium with 25,000 people. And uh, Ralph Wilson, who's who never really valued coaches that much in his ownership until much later on, uh, finally decided after the second year of Jim Ringo's era, so to speak, that uh, he needed a big name. And uh, he wound up paying Chuck Knox to make the jump from, jump from the Rams. And Chuck made uh, several moves on and off the field. He brought several assistant coaches with him and Norm Powell, a top administrator and scout. And uh, they turned it around by 1980. 78, they were still pretty bad, but uh, trying to make moves. O.J. Simpson got traded as soon as Knox got here. And by 1980, they were division champions. They made the playoffs in 81. And uh, things kind of went downhill from there. But uh, Chuck had a pretty good run in Buffalo, no doubt about it. Absolutely. And as we're talking about your book, uh, the Buffalo Bills, the illustrated timeline of a story team, the first person you really got to talk about and mention is uh, Ralph C. Wilson, who founded and owned his team. I think it started in what, 1959 and their first season in the AFL. The first game was when he got the franchise 60. They first started playing. Yeah. July, I think July 31st, 1960 against the New York Titans, I believe. Yeah. Exhibition game. So. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. So, what I wanted to ask you, bud, is how much, what are your thoughts on the late Ralph C. Wilson and how much of an impact he had on this franchise and the city of Buffalo? It's always tough to judge owners, Chris, but this is a guy who pretty clearly um, 
put the team in Buffalo and everyone in Buffalo uh, should give him credit for that. And I think uh, they do exactly that. But uh, when Wilson first was looking to get in the football business, he was a um, part owner of the Detroit Lions, a limited owner or minority owner, whatever you want to call it, and wanted to have his own team. And he looked at Miami first and couldn't get the use of the Orange Bowl. And there was no other facility that would host a legitimate pro football team down there. So we had to look elsewhere. I believe Wilson came to uh, Buffalo and talked to the sports editor of the Buffalo Evening News at the time and a couple other people and got assurances that uh, everyone around here would back his effort to try to get a team. And War Memorial Stadium was constructed in the early 30s, I believe, or late somewhere, 37, somewhere in that area, and uh, was open for business. And uh, he managed to get it there. So you start with the fact that he brought the team here and he kept it here. He could have moved it a few different times to other locations and made a pile of money. Uh, he could have even sold it to Los Angeles interests about 20 years ago. Uh, the lease, the first lease ran out in 1998 and there was some doubt and Doug Foody rejuvenated some enthusiasm and uh, Wilson wound, wound up staying their lease, the lease. So uh, he des deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, there are a couple uh, black marks against his uh, tenure in that I don't think he, he realized how badly he wanted to win. Uh, he took some cost-cutting moves. I remember there was an interview with uh, a conversation that OJ had with Ralph Wilson during the negotiations after OJ was drafted uh, late in 68 or early in 69, and Wilson said, you know, if we pay you that much, I can make more money without you than with you. Uh, wins be damned essentially. And I think Ralph eventually learned that he needed to win to ensure that he had a good legacy. He did a lot of good things for the Bills and football in the 60s, but uh, he needed to put it together. And uh, that's why I think he was pro. And once that happened, the team finally came around after some bleak times in the 80s. And he really did a uh, excellent job of ownership and um, kept the team around and and it's like Terry Pagula now Terry probably could have sold the team as well when the lease was coming up and and made a tidy profit but he was committed to putting it in Buffalo and that builds up a lot of goodwill that builds up a large reservoir of goodwill in both cases and uh, they get credit just for keeping the team here that doesn't mean they're immune from criticism uh, when it's warranted but you start with that fact that they kept the team here and uh, there are a lot of cities that would like to have an NFL team that are bigger than Buffalo, but the team is still here and it's still being supported well. So it's worked out well. One thing I wanted to ask you as well, Bud, is the year 1983, how the Bills made a trade and, and got the draft rights to uh, Jim Kelly. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I think one of the Bills' uh, general manager's secretary put a phone call in and Kelly ended up uh, signing with the Houston Gamblers. How much of an impact was Jim Kelly uh, coming to Buffalo in 86? And do you think Kelly might have saved the franchise as well? I don't know if he saved it. Um, I don't know where it would have gone at that point because of the lease, but he certainly resurrected it. And um, I think he's probably the most important figure in team history because before that, we were getting guys like Bruce Matheson and Joe Dufek at quarterback for the Bills the previous couple of years. And Joe Ferguson retired, and they just didn't have a replacement. They tried Vince Ferragamo, who was awful. Um, and they they had drafted Kelly and lost him, as you said, to the USFL when 
it looked like he was going to sign in the Bills offices and a, a phone call was put through to Kelly in the office and Kelly was told, don't sign anything until you talk to the USFL one more time. And he did and wound up signing there and uh, he got away for a few years. But once he came back, um, the Bills just felt more legitimate. It felt like the franchise was alive again. And uh, that makes him to me the most important figure in uh, as a player in Bills history and time when the Bills needed someone to come into their lives and change the conversation. He did that exactly right. And uh, so give him all the credit in the world. And that makes the trade that allowed him to come here uh, in draft choices uh, one of the best deals in Bills history because it saved the franchises on the field. One thing I read in your book, I didn't even know about this being a big CFL fan is Jim Kelly's agents had talks with the CFL back then. I had no idea about that. Yeah, that's um, a little thing that came along. And I think the agent just wasn't happy with uh, um, what was happening with the negotiations. And the USFL was around, but it doesn't hurt to talk to anybody. And, uh, and the Bills, of course, lost Tom Cousineau to the CFL in 1979. And uh, on a personal note, I remember a couple friends and I went, went up to Hamilton when Cousineau was a rookie. And uh, Montreal was playing at Hamilton. And and we essentially booed every time Cousineau's name came up uh, on the public address system. We were too far away to really boo him personally, but uh, we were still a bitter group at that point that he, he had turned down the bills to go to the CFL to Montreal. You know, he's about the last major name to do that. Uh, unless you count Johnny Manziel as a major name. And I don't think anyone does anymore. Well, Joe Theismann came to the uh, CFL back in the seventies and nearly won a great cup here. And uh, yep, he's still four, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, oh, 71, excuse me. 71. Yeah. They lost yeah. that great cup because Leo McCray, the uh, running back fumbled the ball there, but there are some CFL ties with the Buffalo Bills franchise. And, and even in your book with uh, Bill Polian and Marv Levy, both working together with the uh, Alouettes in the seventies and winning uh, two great cups back to back with them. Yep. That was uh Marv had coached in Kansas City, and uh, really the strike kind of blew up the Chiefs. Uh, they were bitterly divided at that point and uh, Mar kind of disintegrated, and Marv paid the price for that. And I think he learned some lessons for 87 when he was back during the strike here. But, uh, yes, they went together, and um, Polian was hired as the general manager to replace Terry Bledsoe. And Marv said something interesting um, at one point that, uh, later on in his career, he said, as a general manager, it's your job to have a list of potential coaches in your drawer at all times that you update every so often and say, if something happens to my head coach, I need a list as a starting point of who I want to be the head coach. And with the Bills, uh, the Bills had or Hank Bulla at one point yes. as the head coach, and the team was not responding to him at all. And there's a a great story in Fred Smurlis's book um, in which the Bills were playing down in Tampa and there were rumors that Bola was a loss away from being fired. And in the first offensive huddle, Bruce Smith took the stage, if you will, of the huddle and said, if anybody makes a tackle today, I'm going to kick the stuffing out of you or words to that effect. And the Bills went on to lose that game. The Bills did make a few tackles, but I think he got the point across. And um, Bull was gone and Levy was hired uh, before the Wednesday practice. So, um, 
Yeah, Bullock, and that combination proved really, really remark, remarkably well for the Bills because uh, Polian was a very good judge of talent and brought in a number of guys through trades and draft choices, and the talent level just got up to the, the top of the NFL and uh, very well suited for the offense that they ran with Jim Kelly with with guys like Reed, and he signed Lo James Lofton as a free agent, and uh, the offensive line was designed to help Kelly, and Thomas was a perfect all-around back for that sort of offense. So really put a lot together, and uh, if you're always, you wonder why he left, and even Polian says he made a mistake to leave because he had a great situation here and was just too stubborn and wound up uh, quitting and getting fired. Uh, by by uh, Wilson just because they the two of them weren't communicating well and um, Polian to this day takes takes the blame for that said it's all my fault I should have been much smarter. Hypothetical question: Do you think if Polian had stayed, obviously they still had six, some success with John Butler who replaced him, but do you think uh, hypothetically if Polian had stayed, Polian had stayed, they could have gotten back to retooled and gotten back to even a fifth Super Bowl? I don't know. I think uh, they were pretty good, and it's once you make four straight Super Bowls, Chris, you're started knocking against the law of averages. It's really tough to keep the team, and free agency was starting to come in at that point. It kind of it arrived by phases in the NFL, and it was getting tougher and tougher to keep everyone together. And I just don't know how much more they had. I mean, Kelly retired after 96, so there was one year out of the playoffs, one year into the playoffs, and he was done. And with him gone, it was a major rebuilding plan, uh, which they didn't they really didn't finish until Josh Allen came on to replace Kelly 21 years later. So um, you never know if it might have made a difference, but Butler was pretty good. And and, and I, I would probably guess that it might not gotten them back to another – one or two Super Bowls from there. That it's a really tall order. I mean, four has been unprecedented, and to ask much more than that is probably unrealistic. Well, just like in the CFL, the Edmonton Eskimos uh, back in the late seventies and early eighties, they went to the Grey Cup and won it five times in a row. And I don't think you'll ever see that in pro sports again. Just like I don't think you'll ever see an NFL team. I don't think uh, go to four straight Super Bowls. I know the Patriots were close at three, but I think that record. I don't think anyone anyone will ever tie it. Well, remember, the CFL, I assume, had nine teams when the Eskimos were doing all that winning. Yes, yes. The NFL has 32. Two, yes. And when you think about it, you should only win a Super Bowl on average once every 32 years. years. So if the Bills are now in year 64 coming up. So you think, well, if they win one and win the next year, they'll, they'll get their two in 65 years. They'll be a year behind. But the mathematics are very difficult now. And, and once you get a chance at one, you have a chance at, at two or three, but then, then the chance disappears. There's just so much competition. And again, it's tough to beat out 30 something teams, depending on the league uh, for more than a year or two. And there's more playoff games and more playoff series than ever before in every sport. And you're just bound to trip up. Uh, UCLA won all those championships in college basketball, Chris. And they did it with a bracket in college basketball that was kind of unbalanced. It was done by geography and not just we'll put the best teams and spread them out equally. So 
UCLA had a pretty clear shot at making it to the final four most times. And if you give a team a bye to the final four almost, uh, you've got a pretty good chance. You've got the talent, which UCLA did. You've got a really good chance of putting some wins together. And John Wooden obviously knew what he was doing. So they wound up winning uh, nine, 11 years or whatever the number was. And uh, being an Eagles fan, uh, coming close to winning the Super Bowl last year, everybody's expecting the Eagles to get back to the Super Bowl. But you know this, bud. There's no guarantees. Every year is different. Guys get hurt. Guys have off years. And it's a real difficult role to do that. And I don't think as much as nobody likes the Patriots, I, I think what the Patriots did in that 20-year run, I don't think will ever be done again in, 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 the, in the NFL. Yeah, you, you'd, you'd have to guess that, although – Sometimes you just get the right combination, and uh, that's true. Brady and Belichick obviously proved in a very competitive era that that they could win consistently. They didn't win every year, but they won a lot, and they have the trophies uh, in uh, the stadium to prove it. Um, and you know, good for them. They they had to prove you could win, and they did so. So, um, but the Eagles, I don't know. The, I, the Eagles' best break might be that they're playing in the. NFC as opposed to the AFC. The AFC has a lot of good teams. Uh, the Chiefs are going to be good. The Bengals are going to be good. The Bills are going to be good. Um, the And go on down the list. Uh, the Chargers can be tough. They've got uh, Herbert lined up for the next five years or whatever the number is. Uh, go on through. There's some very tough teams in, uh, all over the AFC. The NFC is a little weaker. You think you think San Francisco might, might be a, a threat this year, depending on how things go. And uh, so on down the line, but there aren't as many teams that's scary in the NFC. So the Eagles' path looks to be clear from an, a perspective of August first. Ask me again in six weeks, and we might know a little bit more. Absolutely, and uh, I was just going to get a couple more questions about this book as well, Bud. Um, when I was reading a book, um, obviously Gray made a dedication to one of his friends, and you dedicated the book to your late mother, Natalie. How big of a fan was she, and what were some of her favorite Buffalo Bills moments? Do you remember? Well, um, I'll back up and tell you how she got interested in football. In 1962, we were living in northern New Jersey, and some friends of ours had two tickets to season tickets, two or four, two, I think, to the Giants uh, in New York in Yankee Stadium. And in 62 and 63, they won the division both years and lost in the championship game. But they had Y.A. Tittle and company. And it was a really excellent team that had a really nice run from like 56 to 63 before falling apart. Well, my mother went to a lot of games. My father took me occasionally, but I was only seven or eight and I didn't go that often. But Mom really loved it, and when she should bring a radio to the games, or she'd listen uh, to the games on radio, because in those days, uh, way back when, the home games were blackout, so you couldn't watch them on TV like we can now. So Mom really got hooked on the Giants and hooked on the team, and we moved to Elmira, and we lost the season tickets because the guy who owned them moved back to New Jersey, which didn't didn't make us happy, but they're his tickets. So we moved up to New Jersey, and we could watch every Giants game on TV. And we stayed there through, stayed in Elmira through 1970 and then moved to suburban Buffalo. And my job, dad got a new job up there. And uh, it didn't take long for mom to convert. And uh, dad's company had season tickets and uh, she and dad went a lot uh, and watched all the road games or whatever. And just lived and died by the beers, the bills. And I, as, as I said in the dedication, it's, it's funny, but. 
she went to the strike games uh, with the scabs or the fighters or whatever. There was there was there was an eighty seven. And I remember her telling me she walked in the front when she walked in the gate. Some of the Bills players were waiting for the fans, trying to intimidate them. And Greg Bell looked at her and said, "I don't think you should go in there." And smiled. And my mother said, "I think I will," and smiled back. So she even paid to, paid to see the replacement players, or at least somebody paid for them. And she went to the games, which uh, I mean, I was covering the team back then, and. Um, there were union issues about what reporters should do when there's a strike involved because we're a member of a, a union. I wasn't at that point a, a member of a union uh, because I was freelancing for AP that year. But um, a lot of the guys at the Buffalo News had legitimate questions on how you handle a strike like that, whether it's even correct for them to cross a picket line because it's a it's a union shop at the news. So, uh, but mom went down to Florida and uh, and I think they moved around 88, and uh, she figured out a way to watch the games down there, even though my dad died pretty early in the stay down there. And uh, eventually, uh, satellite dishes came along, and she found a sports bar, which was in a bowling alley, and she would go to the games every week. And uh, one funny story, there were the, and uh, once the drought started, uh, more people were bowling than worrying about the bills in the in the restaurant. And uh, there was one woman who showed up pretty regularly. And at some point, uh, the two of them were coming out of the bathroom and kind of looked at each other. My mother said, oh, I notice you're here a lot. You know, what's your connection to the bills? Are you from there? And the woman said, oh, no, my brother is the general manager of the team. And it turned out it was Mar Marilyn Levy. So they had a lot, lot to talk about at that point. Marilyn didn't really show off, show off that much, but it was uh, funny to think of Mar you know Marilyn sitting in a in a bowling alley watching the game with my mother as, as in those years. What do you remember the most about the War Memorial Stadium? Did you ever go to a game there, or was it uh, Rich Stadium that you went in seventy? I did. I went there in nineteen seventy. We moved here in uh, July of nineteen seventy. Here, meaning suburban Buffalo in this case, and uh, the Bills played an exhibition game. And we took a bus from the old Thruway Mall, which is uh, exit 52 on the Thruway in the day, and went straight down Walden Avenue to War Memorial Stadium and watched a, a preseason game. And um, it was it was a rock pile, no question about it, but it was NFL football. And uh, you know, one of the exciting things for a sports-minded kid who was 14 at the time uh, to move to Buffalo was the fact that the Bills were there already and the Sabres were in, Braves were on the way. So uh, I was really enthusiastic. Um, and we sat all over the place and uh, there were the usual girders and uh, the, the, the seats were not too good and there was obstructions and um, the neighborhood wasn't exactly ideal with no parking, et cetera. But uh, it was the NFL football. Um, I remember one time uh, my dad and I had come down somehow and we, we were walking to the stadium from a parking lot or whatever. And, and I made a sniffing noise and I said, uh, gee, what's that delicious smell in the air? And he said rather smugly, uh, well, that's the smell of homemade made bread, bud. I know growing up in our house, you never would have smelt that. But when I was growing up, that was in our house awful lot. And we both laughed and told the story to my mother who, um, 
I believe didn't take it so well. <laughs> but, uh, and of course, later on, once the, the Bills went to the Ritz Stadium, uh, the Bison showed up in 1979 to play baseball again. And I was one of the play-by-play -play announcers. We did weekend home games on our station. And I did some games in 79, 80, 81, and 84. And uh, it was just funny to be back in that stadium again as an announcer in a working capacity. And uh, the short right field fence, which was, I think, 301 down the line and then curved into 290. So there are a lot of cheap home runs hit uh, seemingly in every game in the, in the stadium. And uh, the left field was, was pretty normal, but there was about a 60-yard gap, or not 60, maybe 30 between the left field fence and the actual bleachers because the field wasn't uh, that symmetrical. So uh, it was always kind of charming in the late, and by the time the Riches took over in the mid-80s, there were a ton of characters, and uh, it was it was kind of a fun house of a ballpark, but it was you were never bored in a game at War Memorial Stadium. I never I went there, but I know the one movie in 1984 was Robert Redford was filmed there, The Natural as well. And uh, did, you, did, does, did Greg or yourself, uh, were you guys able to get any uh, more memorabilia before they tore down War Memorial Stadium? Uh, no, and that was kind of a long process. So they didn't have the, the fire sale they did um, for Memorial Auditorium. It would just kind of disappear. Now, I remember... I went to the last Bills game at, against the Lions in 72 at War Memorial Stadium, and people brought pliers and wrenches and were taking the seats out of the, the cement, concrete, whatever it was, uh, that made the stadium up and, and taking them home uh, and, and trying to knock, knock it loose. So uh, there, there are probably still a few seats around from the place, but they didn't – it wasn't as popular a concept to, like, take the seats and try to sell them, and really the odd – was late in doing that as well. They they salvaged some things, but they really should have done it immediately and made some money and capitalized it uh, on on the financial windfall that they could have taken. I'm assuming they'll do that now with Highmark High Stadium in 2025 when uh, they move into their new stadium in 2020. Oh, you hope so. I, I know a lot of the seats are bleachers, um, upper deck and, and end zones, so... It might not, that might not work as well, but uh, other parts, I mean, they'd, they'd be foolish not to try and sell it. I think they could, they could do well in, in an era where anything is uh, up for sale for memorabilia. If you've looked online at the team websites, uh, I would think they'd have to have to be all over that. And Greg, uh, your core. locker. Here's Bruce Smith's locker. Yeah. On and on. One thing I wanted to ask you, bud, before we get a couple more questions about your book, when they do move into the new stadium, I'm assuming they're going to keep that field house, their indoor practice facility, or will they build a new practice facility as well? I have not heard about a new field house, and I, I think they've spent enough money, so you'd probably justify it. So I, I, I assume you're right um, that they would leave that alone, and certainly it's across the street from the actual stadium, so it's not that big of a deal. So. Yeah, that, I, I've, I've given that a little thought, but I I assume that's the plan. A lot of history in that stadium as well. And uh, I was going to say, do you have a particularly favorite moment at uh, at uh, Highmark Stadium as well as War Memorial Stadium? You know, one of the things I always remember is the comeback game with the Oilers. And not that I was rooting for the Bills per se, but um, 
in those days, I would sit next to the NFL ex, um, uh, representative, and it varied from game to game. Eventually, the guy became the replay official, but it was kind of a observer just to make sure everything was on the up and up and, and was there in case of major problems. And in this case, the guy's name was Val Pinchbeck, who used to be the sports information director at my alma mater of Syracuse University. And Val and I, you know, we didn't know each other really, even though we sat, he was kind of busy and I was kind of busy on, on doing things. And, but that game, it was in the second half, the comeback was so preposterous as, as it was unfolding. We were, the two of us were just sitting there and the Bills would score again or the Oilers would mess up and give up the ball again. And we were just giggling because we just couldn't believe what was happening in front of our eyes. And yet it was. And it was just fun to see it. I didn't see the two guys from the Houston, the, the, um, Houston television station at halftime who got on the phone and booked non-refundable airfare to Pittsburgh for the next week's game because they were so sure the Oilers were going to win at 31 to three and, uh, or whatever the score was at the time, 28, three. And, uh, I, I can only imagine what their faces looked like is that that game unwind, unwound and the Bills wound up winning in overtime. But um, I didn't see fans trying to climb over the fence to get back into the stadium or anything like that. But uh, just to be around it and watching it and, and in disbelief belief and, 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 and having the NFL guy giggle with me was was pretty memorable for me. One thing I wanted to say, Bud, is I actually listened to that game in 93 on – uh, on the radio here in Ontario, and back then the radio signal wasn't very, very good. And, and I, for some reason, Van Miller kept me interested in the game, even though it was twenty-eight to three and thirty-five to three. I, I was such a huge fan of Vil, Van Miller growing up, and he had the ability to keep you in, interested in the game. And uh, I'm glad I never turned it off in the second <laughs> half because it was blacked out too. That game was blacked yes, out it here. Was. And uh, in fact, somehow. There was a housing project in Rochester that had the game piped in on cable, and um, my wife was in Rochester, and uh, she she saw some of it, but he said everyone kind of lost interest at halftime. So a few people managed to see it, but certainly not that many. Of course, uh, now I think I have a VHS copy because I taped it off the uh, um, TV. I think the NFL Network or somebody replayed it at, later on, just just for the historical fun of it. So. Not the VHS tapes are exactly common these days. Thoughts on Van Miller's impact with his franchise as well. And I was able to meet him years ago and, and had my picture with him and he signed a card for me. But to me, he's still the voice of the Bills. Well, John Murphy's done a good job. And yes. John's an yes. old friend of mine, no question about it. But I know what you mean. Um, yes. I moved to Elmira in 1965. And Elmira's kind of on my mind because the school I would have gone to for high school uh, just had its 50th anniversary reunion, 50 of graduation. And I went to the reunion just to see some, my pals from that era. So uh, I had a great time visiting with people talking, swapping stories about grades five through nine for me. But I got to Elmira in 65 and the Bills had won one title or on their way to win the second. And we had something in Elmira that I had never barely heard of in New Jersey. And that was cable TV wow, cable TV, I can get stations from other cities. And the only one from Buffalo was Channel 4, which in those days was WBEN for Buffalo Evening News. And Van was the sportscaster. And 
He was also the play-by-play man of the man, of the Bills, and Van was pretty smug about how good the Bills were. And I'm coming from New York where I knew, watched NFL football and I knew what, what the best football was. And I'm saying to myself, does this guy know that he's not in the, the best football possible, that the, the, the Bills are playing in a second-rate league? He doesn't sound like it. And so I, I kind of laughed him off just because of his attitude at the time. And the fact that not only did I move to Buffalo and got a job in the media, but became Van Miller's friend and did some things with him and, and chatted all the time um, is pretty remarkable. And I, I kind of look back and laugh. And uh, Van was so personable. One time um, when I was working for the Sabres, he got to the game a little bit late and I was in the middle of the press box working for the Sabres. And Van goes, uh, how's the game going, bud? And I said, well, the score is 2-2, but it's close. the game's closer than the score indicates. And Van stopped walking at that point and looked at me like, you know, did I hear just right? And he was like, yeah, I did. So I wish I had a royalty for every time Van used that line on, on the air because I'd be a rich man to this day. But that was Van. He was a character. And uh, several of his coworkers speak very highly of the fact that Van was always – very helpful with advice and uh, on a personal level to them over the years. And uh, they still, they, they have a lot of respect for his talents and still miss him. Uh, so, so yeah, he was, he was the man for 40 years or whatever the number was in Buffalo 43 and uh, uh, set a, a tough standard, but John Murphy, who's also been my friend yes. uh, since the late seventies, who's battling some health problems right now. Won't start the season with the bills, I guess another class act. And, uh, he knew he had a tough act to follow, but uh, he's done it really well. And uh, I'm obviously wishing nothing but good things for him as he, he battles uh, his health issues. And John was one of the first guys, along with Bob Soshi of the Patriots, to come on my show. And uh, John opened up when I, I talked to him about Ernie Harwell. He wasn't a Tigers fan, but he had so much respect for Ernie Harwell, the late uh, Tiger great broadcaster. And uh, John was so nice to come on my show, and uh, I really enjoy it. And I really hope uh, John is back in the booth uh, very soon, hopefully sometime this year as well. Yeah, John's got a book coming out. Um Tales from the Bills locker room, I think, or he wrote it with Scott Petoniak, the Rochester writer, who was his old friend, very good, very good writer. So um, I'm not saying it should be the first on everyone's list, but maybe second. <laughs> I have to ask. Comes out next. All right. Is there a book, any books out on Van Miller? Because I would love to read a, a book about Van Miller's uh, career in TV and with Buffalo sports. There's one that didn't really work well. Okay. And it was old, and there were some interviews, but um, even Van thought it wasn't put together well. So, um, honestly, you know, if you're looking for a really good book on Van Miller, I don't think it was written. But, uh, I mean, we've got – Greg and I are working on a Braves book that should be out by the end of the year. We're putting finishing touches on it now. Tell me and on Van's that. Van's got, got a little bio in there and okay. a couple stories, but – Obviously, he didn't play, and we're sticking to the players at this point. But uh, so he'll be mentioned in there. But but even so, um, you know, Van probably should have written his own memoir uh, rather than uh, work with others because uh, I'm sure he could have come up with it. And, and everybody is attested to the fact that Van, when he wanted to be on a on a uh, as a moderator or 
or MC or Toastmaster General, whatever you want to call him. He was world-class funny. He could, he could go on a stage after getting an award and do 15 minutes of comedy that was pretty much unmatched. And uh, that's, a, that's a rare gift to do well, and, and Van certainly had it. Well, count me in on the Buffalo Braves uh, book, and I think you have one coming up on the Cleveland sports history as well. Right, should be out around Labor Day, I think. Uh, at least that—that's the last word I got. Okay. Uh, game day and um, this day in Cleveland sports history. I did a book on Buffalo in 2013, uh, and I wondered if the format was portable. And then the pandemic came along, and I had lots of time to find out. So. It's been a struggle to get it printed, and uh, we searched for a while after writing it, and then there was photography rights problems, which is getting it's getting more and more difficult to try to come up with the images uh, from old sports games and get them in new books. It's uh, very they're charging an arm and a leg in many cases, and we couldn't have done it otherwise. We scraped it together through a variety of sources, but uh, I think the finished product entertaining and um, if designated for Cleveland uh, audiences. Definitely count me in on those next two books. And uh, one thing too, bud, uh, my first NFL game in Buffalo wasn't the greatest comeback, but it was the greatest regular season comeback. Uh, September 21st, 1987, Colts and Bills. Uh, my uh, late brother-in-law took me to the game. He wanted to leave at halftime. It was 26 nothing. I said, listen, we came all the way here from Ontario. Let's stick it out. And uh, the Bills came back <laughs> without Jim Kelly. It was uh, Todd Callen, Todd Collins, the Michigan Wolverines uh, alumni, and uh, Antoine Smith, and that was a crazy second half and a crazy finish and a great comeback. Well, knowing my life at that point, I was covering the Sabres, and uh, I think that was just after Ted Nolan had been let go, and Lindy Ruff was, was around the team at that point, so I was probably getting ready for a hockey game at, at that point and not paying as much attention to the Bills, but I think we did write up that game just because it was such an extraordinary, so you picked a good one. Yeah, and I was at the Calvin Everett, uh, Everett game as well, and uh, that just seemed like everybody in the stands was silent, and uh, nobody knew what was going to happen. And uh, and it's just, I'm just glad he uh, recovered from that. But that was scary too. That was yeah. I remember. I remember a Broncos game where someone got hurt, and they and, and as soon as the the truck comes out on the field itself, you know it's serious. Serious. And uh, and of course we went went through that with DeMar Hamlin and, and, uh, yes. you know, a couple of people said to me about this book about on the bills, it's like, well, it didn't really have a happy ending. And it's like, yes, a Super Bowl win would have been a nice ending, but, uh, DeMar Hamlin had a pretty good ending to his season and his story because, you know, he's back living to tell about it. And, uh, after headed for far worse consequences and he's on the practice field now. So I said, that's pretty, that's a pretty good happy, in terms of happy endings, that's pretty good, and uh, we're all glad that happened. Absolutely, and uh, just got a couple quick questions, uh, bud, and we'll wrap this up. Uh, what other people would you like to acknowledge with this book? Oh, um, this was kind of funny because it was so research-based, so we didn't need to rely on anybody. Certainly the publishers, um, we worked with them, and they – if the book's good looking, which I think it is, they're the ones responsible for that because they made an effort to make, put out a first class product. And uh, Greg and I have worked really well together. I didn't really know Greg that well until a couple of years ago when I worked him on some football research. And uh, the guy just knows everything. And uh, it, it's been fun to work with. And he's been working on a book on the Providence Steamroller, an NFL team in the 20s and early 30s. And, and I've been editing that and with him. And that'll be out 
who knows when, but uh, it's been great fun to work with a guy who has such enthusiasm and, uh, and really knows his stuff. So uh, without, you know, those, those two things, I, I think you have to really start with them from my vantage point that uh, they help make it. And, and I'm also appreciative of the reaction because the bills are, you know, I knew the bills were hot in town, but there are people around town that I never thought would want to buy a bills book. And, you know, I write this and it's like, Oh, I'll take one. It's like, okay, you sure? Uh, it's been amazing. And it's, it's, it's been fun to pick up on it a little bit this way and just see the depth of enthusiasm in town for all things bills. All right. And uh, that leads to my next question, Bud. can you just tell my audience a little bit about your upcoming uh, book presentations and book signings in the Buffalo area? The big one is a week from uh, Thursday on August 10th. We're at the Buffalo History Museum. Greg's coming back for it. We're going to do a little signing. Uh, we just landed Stu Boyer, the former Channel 2 television sports reporter, uh, to host it. And we'll be talking about the book and uh, answering questions and signing to until our arms get sore. So that's a big one. I think we're going to be in Easter Aurora at the Bookworm on the 11th. And uh, some other things to come. My real high school that I actually graduated from is having its reunion uh, August 18th, 19th, and 20 in Clarence. And uh, the, the book orders are already coming in for that. Uh, they're saying, oh, Bud's going to be there. He better be, I better get, get my book signed there. So I think I'm going to have uh, cramps in my hands by the time that weekend is over. But uh, we're working on other signings uh, and hopefully uh, everyone can can figure out a way to get the book signed. We uh, really enjoy doing that. And I've, I've had a lot of fun so far interacting with fans and getting their books signed and trying to write something funny and meaningfully meaningful in the, uh, that I can write on the front of the book uh, by the title page. So uh, I'm working on it. Hopefully I'll get to your town soon. I was going to say, even though I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, I have a soft spot for Buffalo. And uh, Stu, Stu Boyer has been on my show three times, been really supportive of my work. And But I have some good news. I, I was approved for an NFL media pass this year through my radio station. That. So, yeah, so I'm going to try to come up to Highmark Stadium and uh, and, and cover some NFL games. It's like I do CFL games. But it's going to be a great opportunity. And, uh, and, Buffalo, and I'm going to be up in Buffalo – uh, Friday for the Bills practice at the stadium. And then I'm going to be at a couple of Bison's games in a couple of weeks as well on the 17th and 18th against Rochester. Well, if I'm, if I make it to a game, I'll wait from the stands for you. Definitely. And uh, final question. Can you just tell my audience, uh, those who are Bills fans or NFL fans, why they should consider buying your book and where's the best place to purchase your book at a store or online? Well, as um, a reviewer from Jamestown said, uh, any Bills fan ought to love this book because it's the history of the team uh, served one story at a time. And it, there are a lot of ways of telling history. And, and this is a fun way of doing it. It's all kind of wrapped. Every episode is wrapped up uh, neatly, more or less. And it, it gives the, uh, the uh, a sense of perspective to the team as a whole when you try to read it all. So I hope it works in that sense. And uh, for those who don't know the stuff, they'll learn things. And if they do, it'll bring back memories, certainly. And that's been the reaction I've gotten so far, which has been very pleasing. Uh, best place to buy it, um, in Western New York, at least, it's a, it's on sale at, at all the major bookstores. And um, if you're looking online, um, barnesandnoble.com and especially amazon.com, who's famous for book sales, started with book sales is selling it and i they keep track of where we are on the 
on the list of best sellers. And I think we were number 20 the other day on, uh, on football book. We were behind several fantasy magazines, which always do well because and our book hasn't really been out that long. So nobody even knows about it. Uh, but the, but the usual places nationally and locally, uh, I don't know if, uh, your, your viewers in Canada are uh, liable to go to amazon.ca, but yes, it might yes. be linked. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they can go there. I don't know if yes. they can get the book, but yes. I would hope it would be there one way or another. And if, you know, I know there's Bills fans that come over every home game, so over the bridge, the Peace Bridge, et cetera. So uh, they might be interested too. And, uh, you know, I don't have any book signings in Canada. I'm not really who to, how to set that up, but uh, yeah, if someone's viewing, you know, you name it, I can come over. Because, like I said, well, like I said, I I might read your book again a second time because I really enjoyed it. Uh, before we wrap this up, bud, um, 13 seconds or Music City Miracle loss to the Tens. Which loss, both of them were devastating playoff losses, but which one would you term is even the hardest one to swallow? What a great question because they're both. Devastating losses. They're both devastating because the worst losses are the ones you mentally checked out as a win. And those two games certainly qualified. You just said to yourself, there's no way this, this is going on. Now, I should say the 13-second game with the Chiefs, my wife was sitting with me in the, in the end of regulation, and there were 13 seconds left, and she said too much time. And after the, what had happened in the last two, the two minutes leading up to that, she she must have known something because uh, she was right and there wasn't. Um, I think maybe the difference was the game with Tennessee had a Bills team that was good, but I don't know if anyone had any Super Bowl thoughts about it. And now, 20-odd years later with the, seven, the 13 seconds game, the Bills were considered to have a really good chance of getting to the Super Bowl, especially if they got by Kansas City in Kansas City. Still had a game to go to get to this to win before they get to the Super Bowl. So I think that element added to the disappointment and probably gives it a narrow victory over the one that hurt the most. But boy, it's probably 99-98 on a scale of 100. Well, hopefully, like I said, hopefully this year it can be a Philadelphia Buffalo Super Bowl, and uh, the Bills are in. The Bills are in Philadelphia in November, and the uh, Eagles are going to be wearing their uh, throwback Kelly Green jerseys, which is okay. I think are look sharp. So I'm 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 excited about that, and I, I really think if both teams can stay healthy, it could be a a Philly Buffalo Super Bowl matchup this year, possibly. We'll see. All right, bud. And where can my audience, uh, what's the best place for my audience to follow you on social media? And uh, I'm going to put up your uh, Buffalo Sports page uh, website as yeah, well. Yeah, and you've done Twitter, which is WDX2BB. You flashed that quite a bit. Thank you. And uh, that's where you know what I'm thinking from moment to moment. And you can read book reviews and various other things that I put up for the heck of it. And my thoughts on the sports world as they come to me uh, on a wide range of subjects. So uh, that's the place to go. All right. Well, bud, hey, I look forward to your next couple of books, and hopefully we'll see you in a, a couple of weeks at the ballpark. And uh, I was going to say, bud, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time today. And again, great job on the book. And uh, I will send you a copy of our uh, episode later on as well. Okay. I appreciate the time and the effort. You're we'll welcome, you bud. Definitely. You too. Talk to you later, bud. 
All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed season six, episode 29 today. Overall, 304 today with Bud Bailey, the Buffalo Sports Page lead columnist, former Buffalo News copy editor and reporter from 94, 90, 94 to 2017. He's covered the Bills, he's covered the Sabres, he's covered the Buffalo Bandits, and uh, him and Greg. Uh, Tranter uh, have just published a book, uh, the illustrated timeline of a storied team about the Buffalo Bills. So you can purchase this book online at amazon.com, amazon.ca. But if you're a Bills fan or even an NFL historian, check out the illustrated timeline of a stored team, the Buffalo Bills. Bud uh, is a great, does great job he's done radio he's done newspapers and he's done a little bit of everything in media and i, I really appreciate uh bud uh bud bailey coming on here today uh for season six episode 29 as well the next live with cdp sports talk will be wednesday august 2nd at 7 p.m my special guest will be griff boarding nun I think it's I think I pronounced that right. Bora Dingnan. Uh, he is a sports reporter with uh, Kreiner Media out of uh, Mississauga. And uh, Griff's going to talk about his career as a sports reporter and maybe a little bit about the CFL and the Toronto Argonauts as well. So hopefully everyone can tune in to season six, episode 30 of Live with CDP Sports Talk, brought to you by Gary Cullen Chevrolet tomorrow night with Griff uh, Bora Dingnan at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and LinkedIn as well. Also, guys, to wrap it up with Bud, you can check his work out on buffalosportspage.com. And again, you can follow Bud on Twitter at WDX2BB. That's at WX, sorry, WDX2BB as well. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up the show shortly. Uh, just bear with me. As always, live with CDP Sports Talk, a weekly sports and entertainment show hosted by yours truly, Chris Pame, is on weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on WQEE 99.1 FM, The Key, the home of Southern Sports and Talk, the heartbeat of Atlanta. Website for uh, the radio station, if you'd like to listen to my show on the internet, uh, wqeefm.radio12345.com as well. Live with CDP Sports Talk is live streamed on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, LinkedIn. Thank you, everybody, for watching this live streamed uh, episode today. Also, guys, if you'd like to, you can follow me on beacons.ai slash Chris D. Palme, all my social media, uh, all my social media sites and all my digital content is on there as well. Beacons.ai slash Chris D. Palme. Live with CDP Sports Talk is sponsored by Barry Cullen Chevrolet Dealership at 905 Woodlawn Road West in the Guelph Auto Mall. Check out barrycollin.com for the newest selection of new and pre-owned GM vehicles or give them a call at 519-824-0210 or email them at info at as well. Also, guys, check out the Summer Adventures event at Barry Collin Chevrolet right now. 2023 Equinox and Blazer RS model available at 4.49% financing for up to 60 months. More details at barrycollin.com or uh, drop by the dealership at 905 Woodlawn Road West in the Guelph Auto Mall. 
Finally, you can you guys can follow me and find me on TikTok at Live with CDP. I post all my player and coach interviews, all my podcast promos and sports events on TikTok at Live with CDP. And I want to say thank you to my 1,435 followers. Uh, two years ago, I had maybe a couple hundred followers, and now I'm I'm going I'm working on getting 1,500 followers. So if you haven't followed me on TikTok. Please find me on TikTok at Live with CDP and hit the follow notification button as well. StreamYard is the official live stream provider of Live with CDP Sports Talk. If you're into webinars or podcasting such as myself, check out StreamYard.com as well. Live with CDP Sports Talk, the audio version is available on these platforms, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify for Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, CastBox, LinkedIn, Stitcher, and Tuned In. And also weeknights at 8 on WQEE 99.1 FM. Finally, guys, you can email or text live with CDP Sports Talk at cpame19 at gmail.com, or you can text the show at 519-820-7188. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please feel free to do so as well. And again, my next live with CDP Sports Talk is going to be tomorrow night, Wednesday, August 2nd, with my guest. I'm just trying to remember where I put the sheet. My guest's name is Griff. Boarding Jin, if I have his name right, I hope I didn't butcher it. Uh, he's from uh, Crider Media, and he's going to be on my show at 7 o'clock uh, tomorrow night to talk about his career as a sports reporter, uh, working with Crider Media at uh, Mississauga, and also maybe talk a little CFL and some Toronto Argonauts with us as well. And the next Argo Bounce Live audio show with my co-host Nick Small, Thursday, August 3rd at 8 p.m. That's Thursday, August 3rd. 8 p.m. with Nick Small for the Argo Bounce Live Audio Show. Nick and me will talk about the Argonauts' 31-13 win over Saskatchewan on Saturday and preview their upcoming game against the Calgary Stampeders as well. Again, I want to say thank you to everyone watching this live streamed and also on my audio platforms. And thank you to those who listen on WQEE 99.1 FM. I really enjoyed having Bud Bailey here as well. And uh, just give me a little bit of time and I'll have this episode downloaded to all my audio platforms as well. I hope everybody has a great evening and we'll see you again tomorrow night, uh, 7 o'clock for another edition of Live with CDP Sports Talk brought to you by Barry Collins Chevrolet and on WQEE 99.1 FM. Have a great afternoon, everybody, and we'll see you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock for Live with CDP Sports Talk.